You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Impeach him again. Impeach the motherfucker again for a third time. Because why not? If we can't get all 50 Dems in the Senate to agree to do the fuck away with the filibuster, nothing is going to get done in Congress anyway. If the 50 Dems in the Senate, who represent 42 million more Americans than the 50 Republicans in the Senate, if those 50 Dems don't all agree to end the anti-small-D Democratic filibuster, the Senate isn't going to have anything to do anyway. And since we don't want those motherfuckers to be idle, since we don't want to pay them just to sit there and do nothing— the Dem-controlled House should just keep impeaching the motherfucking former president, which they have the power to do, and sending new articles of impeachment to the Senate, forcing them to hold trial after trial after trial. Because why the fuck not? Backing up for a quick second, for those of you who don't know what the filibuster is, it is a rule that requires 60 senators to agree to end debate in order to vote on legislation. For 200 years, it was very rarely used, and when it was used, it was mostly used by racists to block civil rights legislation. But now it has been fully weaponized by today's Republican Party to block any and all legislation. There's a great explainer on eliminating the filibuster at indivisible.org. Just look up the article, Eliminating the Filibuster. And yes, Filibuster does sound like a euphemism for something filthy and fun. And if we eliminate the filibuster, we can redefine the word to mean something else. I mean, fill, getting filled, buster, busty, bust a nut. There's a lot to work with there. And we'll get to that work once the filibuster is eliminated. And we are so close to being able to do that work because right now, 40 fucking eight Democratic senators have come out in support of getting rid of the filibuster, which is really has to happen if Dems are going to pass a public option for Obamacare or federal legislation blocking Republican efforts at the state level to make it harder to vote, including in critical swing states, or Dems are going to enact parts of the Green Deal and on and on. And two Democratic senators have come out against eliminating the filibuster. So if you're a Democrat and you live in West Virginia and Joe Manchin represents you in the Senate or you live in Arizona and Kristen Sinema represents you in the Senate, give your senator a call. Send your senator an email. Tell them to get rid of the fucking filibuster. This is dire because voters are going to punish Dems in 2022 and 2024 if Dems don't get shit done. People know, people intuitively know that Dems have the power to deliver here. Not just for the majority of Americans that voted them into power, but also for Americans who didn't vote for Democrats, but might next time if Dems get some shit done that improves their lives. And voters aren't going to want to hear that respect for norms or process prevented Democrats from exercising their power and improving Americans' lives. Republicans wouldn't hesitate to end the filibuster if that's what they had to do to deliver for billionaires and bigots, and the Dems shouldn't hesitate to kill the fucking filibuster either. All right, back to the impeachment trial. I didn't watch. I couldn't watch. I baked a cake. I sucked a dick, which is ironic because after baking a cake and sucking a dick, I got a message during the impeachment trial, a DM on Instagram, that had me thinking more deeply about both cakes and dicks for the rest of the day. Where are all the erotic cake stores, Craliata asked me on Instagram. I haven't seen one in years, but they used to be everywhere. And you know, 
Cray is right. There used to be erotic bakeries in every major city. We used to have one here in Seattle, very creatively named the Erotic Bakery. They made dirty cakes, gag cakes. If you wanted a cake in the shape of a dick, you ordered from the Erotic Bakery. They made vulva cakes too, but the money was in dick cakes. Mainly for bachelorette parties, these bakeries started popping up decades ago, which was before bachelorette parties made the transition to basically bachelor parties. It used to be the groom who went out on the town with his friends and got fucked up, and the bride stayed home with her friends and got fucked up. A bachelorette party was a baby shower with no baby, more alcohol, and a cake in the shape of a dick. Anyway, while everyone else was watching Donald Trump's second impeachment trial, I was engaged in an act of self-care. I was looking up old news stories about Seattle's erotic bakery and reading about why it went out of business or why they shut it down. It didn't go out of business. They closed. Seemingly at the exact same time that other bakeries like it all over the country were closing too. So while you were reading hot takes about the trial on Twitter, I was reading 10-year-old hot takes about hotcakes. Turns out Seattle's erotic bakery closed in 2014 due to a decline in demand. The owner, Kimmy Barnett, gave multiple interviews. She said people in 2014 just weren't ordering dick cakes the way they were back in 1984 when the shop opened. And I thought, 1984, 1994, 2004, the boom time for erotic bakeries, that was really an era when you didn't see dicks everywhere. You had to go out of your way to see a dick. I can see more dicks in 10 minutes on Twitter right now than I saw in the 10 years between ages 18 and 28. Remember how it used to be surprising to see a dick, sometimes even delightful? Now we're basically all dodging dicks all day long. There's porn all over the internet, dicks all over Twitter, unsolicited dick pics popping into our phones. Guys, according to studies, women do not enjoy receiving unsolicited dick pics, but gay men do. So guys, if you feel the urge to send an unsolicited dick pic, send it to a gay friend, not someone you hope to be your girlfriend. Anyway, my point is we can all see more dicks in 10 minutes on Twitter right now than you could see in any of those decades that the erotic bakeries were booming. So that's where the erotic bakeries went, Clay. The growing ubiquity of dicks, dicks everywhere over the decades, made their cakes less delightful, less surprising, less naughty. When actual dicks are coming at you constantly, there's going to be less demand for marzipan dicks on cakes. You could say, when it comes to dicks and cakes, we've all had our fill. A buster. All right, coming up on today's show, Dr. Sarah Hunter Murray is here to talk about her new book, Not Always in the Mood The New Science of Men, Sex, and Relationships. That's on the Magnum Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. On the micro, free Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, all that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30 year old cis bi woman calling from a major East Coast city. I went through a breakup back in November, and it actually was very amicable. I'm still on great terms with my ex. And actually, we're now kind of in a very healthy, you know, tied over the pandemic winter friends with benefits situation, which is a little bit of a quarantine success story embedded in this question. My question is actually, so my ex was also bi, and uh, I met him on a dating app and just kind of stumbled upon him. And it wasn't in his profile. It wasn't until... You know, we had gone on a couple dates and it came up in conversation that I realized he was bi and it ended up being really meaningful for me. It felt like something that we bonded over. It felt like something that shaped the way we both saw relationships and 
sex and all the ways you can do relationships that are perhaps, you know, different from the heteronormative standard or the default settings. And the relationship didn't work out, you know, for a number of reasons. But uh, I came away with it feeling like I would really love to date a fellow queer person again. And like I said, I'm bi, but I, I definitely lean towards men. I'm pretty heteroromantic and kind of see myself, I think, ending up in a long-term relationship with a guy. So I guess my question is, I I don't know how to seek out bi dudes who date women or primarily date women because it just doesn't seem to be something that people are readily disclosing on dating apps in their profiles. I know in general, you know, there are lots of bi men who are not out. I think that, you know, based on what I know, the statistics by women outnumber bi men, but I just don't know how I go about finding another bi dude when I just kind of stumbled upon it organically. And of course, you know, I think the answer, like most things, is the internet. But I don't know, I already feel like I have decently high standards and I'm I'm pretty picky about who I date. And I feel like I'm taking my already kind of small pool of prospective partners and narrowing it further by saying, oh, it's really important to me to date a fellow queer person. So I don't know. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on all of this and how I approach this and maybe how I go about finding another fantastic bisexual dude to date. So here's what you do. Your dating profile. Stop worrying about what the bi guys out there are are not disclosing about themselves on their dating profiles. Your dating profile. Put on your dating profile that you are bisexual but heteroromantic, which is something I actually have come to think that most bisexuals are, and say, I am interested in dating bi guys. And I know there are a lot more guys on this site who are bi than guys who list themselves as bi. That won't stop straight guys who are interested in you from responding to your ad. It will attract the attention of guys who are bisexual whose ads don't say they're bi because they don't want to be discriminated against. They don't want to be rejected out of hand. They want to give a woman a chance to get to know them before they disclose it like your ex did because there's a lot of people out there who just won't date bi guys. There are a lot of bi women out there who will say they won't date bi guys, which is crazy. You're not one of those bi women. You're someone that – Bisexual, bisexuality in a male partner isn't something that you're willing to tolerate. It isn't a price of admission that you're willing to pay. It's something that you're psyched about and excited about. doesn't sound like it's something you fetishize, but even if it were to some extent something that you fetishized, even if to some extent you really got off on watching the, your husband or boyfriend suck a dick, that wouldn't be so awful for a lot of bi guys out there who've had to endure and being in relationships with – Women who disapprove or they assume disapprove and then they can never tell. That correlates very highly being in a relationship with someone who despises your bisexuality with negative mental health outcomes for bi men. The biphobia, not of the broader culture, the biphobia, not of the gay and lesbian community, but the biphobia of their opposite sex partners. This is a marketable trait. Put it out there. Don't worry about what the bi guys are are not putting on their ad. Don't worry about how hard it is for you to search whatever the dating apps you're on and find the bi guys. Just make it easier for the bi guys out there to find you. Hi, Dan. I'm a Canadian calling you. I'm just trying to help my friend. She is engaged and was going to be married in September, and she recently found out that her fiancé had cheated on her. 
and she really wants to work it out. And I do think they are going to work it out because they are a good couple. And I've been trying to tell her about positive stories. People staying together after cheating, because I think it's so taboo and, and people don't really talk about it or people aren't open about it. That I just am wondering if some of your listeners can share stories of, you know, positive things that happened after cheating so I can help give her some hope that, you know, eventually things will go back to normal one day. First, a book recommendation. I would get your friend a copy of The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity by Esther Perel. I recommend that book a lot. There are stories in that book of couples whose relationships were touched by infidelity, couples where one or the other, sometimes both, cheated. And there are some great case studies in the book, clients, people that Esther Perel has worked with as a psychotherapist, who got through infidelity and came out stronger as a couple on the other side. Also tossing this out there to listeners of mine, if your relationship endured an infidelity, if you got through it, if you survived it, if you came out stronger on the other side of an affair and you want to call in and share your story, we will play a selection on an upcoming episode. Hi, Dan. I'm a married woman living in the South. I know you've often talked on the show about the price of admission when it comes to relationships. The price of admission to be with my husband was accepting that he had no interest in a few different things that I had always been interested in but never had a chance to try, namely a male-male-female threesome or opening up the relationship in some form or even just playing with others as a couple. We talked about these things openly when we very first started dating, so nothing was sprung on either of us after marriage. I dated a whole lot in my teens and 20s and tried a lot of different things and felt like I had a good grasp of who I was and what I wanted in a relationship. And my husband ticks a whole lot of those boxes. And overall, I think we are a very good match. But now that we've been married for a few years, reality is setting in a bit that we are in this thing for the rest of our lives. And I can't help but be a little bit disappointed in the fact that there are different sexual or relationship things I have always wanted to try. And now I'll never get a chance to. While the idea of my husband hooking up with someone else actually excites me and turns me on, I know that he never, ever would and thinks it's kind of weird that that excites me and is likewise, obviously, completely against the idea of me being with anyone else. He has also already experienced a threesome with another guy and a girl and said that he hated it and never wants to try it again. I've never been in an open relationship or had a threesome with two men, so I couldn't exactly say that it was a deal breaker for me in the beginning when we talked about all of this. When I was a teenager, I was a little bit obsessed with the idea of hooking up with a girl and thought that I was likely bisexual until I did hook up with a few different girls, one-on-one, a lesbian threesome, threesome with a guy and another girl, and realized after all of that that it was fun, but it doesn't do enough for me to consider myself bisexual. So because of that, part of me thinks I'm fixated on these things because I know I'll never have them, and I wonder if whether I did experience them Maybe I would see that they're just not for me and it wouldn't be an issue at all that our marriage doesn't include them. I guess it's just the not knowing and the idea of never being able to explore it and find out that bothers me. I know that you've also talked about how in a lot of open relationships, the participants were not into the idea at first that gradually came around, but I don't want to hold out hope that that might eventually happen since it seems both unlikely and unfair to my husband who was honest about all of this from the start. I guess I'm not really sure what my question even is. Maybe how do I stop wanting to try these things? How do I accept that there are just certain things in life I won't ever get to experience because it's the price of admission I agreed to pay? 
Just because you paid the price of admission or decided that the price of admission was a price of admission you were willing to pay at the start of a relationship or a marriage doesn't mean you have to pay that price eternally. You can change your mind about whether you're going to continue to pay that price. If this is a price you are no longer willing to pay, if going without these experiences frustrates you, if if it fills you with resentment, if it's going to curdle into something worse than resentment and destroy your marriage, well, then you go to your husband and you issue an ultimatum and you put him in the position of having to decide whether he's willing to allow you to do these things in order to keep you in the relationship, whether he's willing to open up the relationship on your side perhaps exclusively since he's not interested in sleeping with other people and be a bit of a pud, poly under duress or not poly necessarily because you're not looking to have relationships with other people but open under duress and out. Not quite as catchy as a pud, out, but out. It's going to be messy and it's going to be ugly and it could end your marriage. He could decide to leave you or you could wind up having one of those conversations where he angrily tells you to do whatever you need to do. He just doesn't want to know about it. And then you'll maybe, best case scenario, leave that conversation with a permission slip, a little don't ask, don't tell permission slip issued in anger and issued under duress. But then you can put it in your back pocket. You can live in hope. Sometimes to have your partner's permission, if the planets all align and you can do this thing that you want to do, maybe get it out of your system. Of course, getting it out of your system never quite works. Sexual fantasies, sexual experiences aren't things we get out of our system. You know, multi-partner sex, kinky sex, just like vanilla sex. You'll do it and when you're done doing it, you're like, wow, I I'm done doing that. And then you'll get horny again and want to do that thing again. But to have his permission slip in the back of your pocket, possibly, that if the planets align, one day you might be able to do this. It's paradoxical, I know, but sometimes having your partner's permission to do the thing takes the edge off your desire to do that thing immediately because you know that eventually you might be able to do that thing. And it can make living without ever having done that thing and possibly never getting to do that thing a little bit easier because you can live in hope that if the planets all align, again, you might be able to do this thing. So you might exit this conversation exiting your marriage, that's a risk. Or you might exit this conversation with this permission if an MMF circumstance ever presents itself and it's never going to get back to him, he's never going to know about it, you're not going to get pregnant, you're going to be extremely safe in that moment and minimize your risk for contracting a sexually transmitted infection. Okay, go ahead and do it. That's what you might leave that conversation with. But you might leave that conversation with your marriage in ruins and with him Reaching out to a divorce attorney, that's the risk here. You have to decide whether getting that permission slip, getting that allowance to do these things that, oh my God, you should have done before you got married, fantasies, kinks. These things are important. And I people at the beginning of a relationship will convince themselves that to prioritize sexual compatibility is to be a sex-deranged pervert and if everything else is working but the sex isn't there or you're not sexually compatible, that you shouldn't leave somebody about that or negotiate with somebody around that and extract an agreement from them before you make a commitment that allows for you to be who you are sexually because that's just placing too much importance on sex. 
But as invariably happens, the longer you're with someone, the longer you go without whatever it is that you need to feel sexually fulfilled, the bigger a problem it becomes in the relationship. It just can't be wished away. Doesn't mean every sexual fantasy has to be acted on. It doesn't mean everybody who's ever paid the price of admission by entering into a relationship with somebody who isn't into anal and they are and they go without anal stews in anger and resentment and eventually the marriage collapses. But if it's something really important to you, something you've always wanted to do, if it really speaks to who you are, not fighting for it, for a space for it at the beginning of the relationship, before you make a commitment, before you scramble your DNA together is a huge mistake. You, caller, you made that mistake. Now you're faced with the daunting prospect of re-engineering your relationship, renegotiating your commitment to allow for these things, to get permission from a guy who isn't into these things at all to go do these things with, most likely not with, or without him. Or you could cheat if you're with somebody 50 years and they only cheat on you once or twice. They were good at being monogamous, not bad at being monogamous. The inverse of that, of course, is if you're with somebody 50 years and you only cheat on them once or twice, then you were pretty good at being monogamous. Still a shitty thing to do. Still something that might blow up your marriage. A lot of people can't look at even one infidelity and weigh it against 49 years, one infidelity in one year or one day or one night and weigh it against 49 years and 365 days of perfectly executed exclusivity and commitment and monogamy. So it is a risk and I'm not advising you to cheat. I think you should have this difficult conversation and I think other people listening should be inspired by your predicament to have this difficult conversation, to prioritize what they need out of life, not just the relationship sexually at the start of a relationship before a commitment is made. Because to renegotiate those terms after a long-term commitment is made after a marriage is really hard. And really dangerous, and a lot of marriages collapse during those negotiations. Good luck. Hey, Dan. I'm a 36 year old in the Bay Area. I recently, a week ago, ended a five year relationship, a polyfidelitous triad. I was a single female dating uh, a couple who had been dating for um, about 12 years. And then the three of us uh, had been dating for about four years. And I'd been dating the man for five total. It was a great arrangement. It wasn't perfect. And then when the pandemic happened, he became increasingly, increasingly disconnected from me and more and more connected to his other longtime partner. None of us lived together. And we just grew apart during this time, unfortunately. I don't know. It just sort of like fell apart and anger happened and resentment happened and um, days of visitation happened and didn't happen and sharing happened and didn't happen. And there were lots of fights and um, it just got to a point where I needed to break it off. So I called him up on a Saturday morning and I left him a voicemail and that's it. That's how the relationship ended. I'm calling because he texted me a week ago and said that, you know, after we had taken some time and the anger had kind of settled down, he texted and said that we would talk on the phone in a few days. And now it's been about a week. And I just 
am a little bit in disbelief that a five-year relationship comes down to a voicemail and then nothing. I haven't heard from him. I just, it's just a little bit unbelievable to me that like this is how a five-year intimate relationship with two other people comes to a close, just to never hear from them again. He texted me, told me we would talk on the phone in a few days. It's been more than a few days. He hasn't reached out. Is the ball in my court? Even though I was, I fought really hard to keep the relationship going and then I was eventually the one who ended it. Do I need to put forth any more effort and work into this relationship? Or should I just accept it and move on with my life? It's just like five years is not an insignificant time. And I just, I'm having trouble getting over the fact that we just like never speak again, seriously. So I'm not sure what to do. If I should be the one to follow up and give him a call and talk it out and close it out. Or if that's just it, if I just like need to fade into the darkness and move on with my life and start dating some other people. What do you think? I have this t-shirt that I love, uh, bear with me. This will make sense in a second from this, uh, really great company called hinterland empire in California, woman owned woman run woman designs. It's really awesome. And I want to preface, uh, what's on the t-shirt with designed by a woman, marketed by a woman, sold by a woman's company. And the t-shirt says, uh, over an image of a frog holding an umbrella and it's raining inside the umbrella. It says everyone is fighting their own battle. Try not to be a cunt. I don't think you're being a cunt. That's not what I mean to imply. What I'm saying here is that you don't know quite what's going on with them. And of course, you don't know what's going on with them because they haven't been communicating with you. But this is a difficult time. The last year has been incredibly hard uh, on so many people. And it may feel like the two of them prioritized each other over you, but you don't know what's going on in their relationship. You don't know what's going on in each of their lives because, again, they haven't shared that information with you. It might be helpful if they had shared that information with you. It still might not be satisfying. You still might be angry about the effort you put into trying to sustain this relationship and how that effort wasn't met with effort on their sides after all these years together to sustain a relationship with you, there's probably not a lot they could say that's going to take the edge off your hurt. Only time will take the edge off your hurt. But if and when you speak to them again, considering what the last year has been like for so many people, you're likely to find out things that, while not excusing their neglect of you, might put it into a context where you can wrap your head around it, but you're not going to get that information. You're not going to get that download until you hear from them. And they told you a week ago, or he told you a week ago, he would call you in a few days. Few is a bit elastic. Some people say, I'll call you in a few days and they mean exactly three. Some people say, I'll call you in a few days and they mean something under double digit days. And he is still under double digit days here. So you may hear from him. But again, what you hear from him, well, you might find out some things that have been going on for them that makes their neglect of you not forgivable necessarily, but perhaps a little bit more understandable. You're unlikely to get closure, though. 
what you're angry about. This is how it ends after five years. After five years in this poly triad, you just choose each other and run off with each other together and leave me. And that's not going to change. They left you in the dust. They left you behind. They chose each other. That is always going to hurt. I do think that closure is something we do for ourselves. It's not a gift other people give us. I also think that after several years, five years with someone or a couple, that they should demonstrate a little bit more consideration and a little bit more compassion when ending the relationship. You've also been going through this pandemic and you've managed to get through this pandemic with a lot less emotional, social, sexual support than they've had going through this pandemic because they had each other and chose each other. And they've demonstrated a lack of consideration and a lack of compassion for you at a time where you could really be going through it too. And you have been going through it just as they've been going through it. So my advice for you is, yeah, the ball is in their court. You reached out and you say there's been some exchange of messages after this phone call. So you're still in his mind. You're still in their minds. They still need, and they've demonstrated that they know they need to circle back to you, to get in touch with you, not to end it because you already ended it. You broke up with him with a voicemail. For all you know, he was upset and hurt to get a voicemail. For you to end it after five years with a voicemail, he may have his own beefs and complaints when you get him on the phone. They should have reached out to you after they said they would. They shouldn't have let you die on the vine there throughout the pandemic. But it's just going to take time. It's going to take time to get over it. You'll hear from them. When you hear from them, you will still be angry when you hear from them about how long it took for them to get back to you. And maybe with an explanation, with some context, after he gets to tell you that he was hurt, that you ended it with a voicemail, and you get to tell him that you were hurt that they withdrew from you and so clearly chose each other and didn't prioritize you at all as an equal partner, after you both aired your grievances, maybe that'll help. Maybe you can move on. And even if you don't hear from them in under double-digit days, within the next few days, you live in the same city, you probably move in some of the same circles, you are likely to run into them again. Maybe at some point in the future, after you've given yourself a little bit of closure about this relationship, after you've given that gift to yourself, when you do run into them or they reach out to you, the anger will be a little less white hot than it is right now. And maybe then will be a better time to talk about it. But now, now is the perfect time for you to move on, for you to make the decision to move on, for you to close that door, for you to give yourself the gift of closure and not sit around getting angrier and angrier as you wait for that phone to ring. Hi, Dan. I'm a 34-year-old male. I'm gay. So I have a friend who called me to tell me that another mutual friend, that he had found out that our mutual friend was potentially sleeping with a guy periodically. He would get drunk and fuck some guy. This is only a thing because this mutual friend is straight. The mutual friend and I are very close, and I think it is dangerous for him to hang out with the guy who called to tell me about this. And I want to warn him without telling him that I know that potentially there's something like, I don't want him to, I'm not trying to out anyone or, or bring any shame. I just think that he should know to stay away 
from the friend who called to tell me about this because that friend is planning to try and I don't know that friend is planning to try and get him somehow. It's it's all very predatory. How do I do that? So just so I'm clear, there's this guy who either identifies as straight or allows people to assume he's straight, who's fucking a dude, and some other friend of yours knows about the fact that this ostensibly straight dude is fucking a dude, and he wants to fuck him, and you're worried about what happening exactly? And so and so so okay, so the guy who identifies as straight is uh he's we i know him because he's a trainer of mine and my other friend who found out about him wants to start coaching with him again and wants to it feels really predatory it feels like he's trying to lure him in he's talked about like having him over maybe having him have a couple of drinks and seeing what will happen and so i've tried to warn my trainer friend like hey be careful around this guy because he could be but but like i I don't want to be too explicit because i don't want to inadvertently out someone i feel like if he wanted to tell me he would it's none of my business well you could i mean you can say to a straight trainer at a gym particularly a straight trainer who works a lot of gay men my friend Mark sure has the hots for you that doesn't obligate him to come out to you that doesn't mean he's gay necessarily But then you yeah. sort of, you know, raised a, you know, you sent up a flare in case Mark's attention, not that the guy's name is Mark, but in case, quote unquote, Mark's yeah. attentions are unwelcome, then he won't want to get alone with Mark and have a couple of drinks. But if Mark's attentions are welcome, if this guy is heteroflexible, if this guy is bisexual, but heteroromantic or whatever is going on for this guy, sure. once he knows that, you may have been the matchmaker, that got Mark sure. into his pants. Mark's desire to get into his pants isn't necessarily predatory, so long as he's not, you know, pouring an entire bottle of Maker's Mark down his throat in an effort to get into his pants. Yeah, that's true. I think I am kind of like making an insinuation about my our mutual friend. I mean, he is like I find him to be a little skeezy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he actually is or is behaving that way. That is very true. Is there any jealousy at play here? Do you want to get in this trainer's pants? No, not at all. The reason I think I feel a little weird about it is because I do find the mutual friend to be a little skeezy, just like past behavior. Uh-huh. No, I think of the trainer more like a brother figure, and it's mostly that like. Uh, like I feel like, yeah. So, I so think the, of him more like a brother figure. The person you're actually contemplating outing is this friend of yours who's skeezy and you feel predatory. So why is he your friend? But we'll set that aside. You know, he's got yeah. kind of a skeezy past that you would, if you were going to sleep with him, maybe want to know about. If you were going to date him, you would want to know about that because it would make you not want to date him or fuck him. And so you kind of want to share that info with this trainer in case he's thinking about fucking him, but you can't because then that means you're going to have to tell the trainer that you know he fucks dudes and you're telling him not to fuck this particular dude. Exactly. And it's also that like the way that he talks about wanting to have him over for cocktails, wanting to have him over to like see if he can get him drunk, see if he can get him to 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 fuck him with the little alcohol okay, you can uh, you can courage. definitely share all that information with your trainer without outing without telling the trainer that you know that he sometimes fucks dudes you can say to him yeah mark has the hots for you so you know if he takes you out for drinks probably gonna make a move and then he'll be on his guard he'll also then know if you know mark is somebody he wants to fuck 
have a couple of drinks and, and fuck, he totally could. And, yeah. you know, somebody who's a personal trainer is a service professional, works with a lot of people. And if this guy gives off a bad vibe, I think you can trust that someone who is in a service industry could pick up on that. And you don't necessarily have to say, here's all the shitty things Mark's ever done that I know about and yeah. yet we are still friends somehow. Yeah, I mean, we're not, like, that close of friends. It's just, uh, like, he's my neighbor, so, uh, like, I know him pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, but he did a couple of skeezy things that we're not that close. Um, okay, so if he's somebody you would warn a gay friend off of? Yes, you, he is. You can definitely. warn your personal trainer about him without, with the, the, the premise of the warning being, of course, he wouldn't be interested. The assumption being, you know, a respect for his public sexual orientation is public sexual identity being, you know, of course you wouldn't be interested. You don't even have to say that. You can just say, just so you know, like Mark totally has the hots for you. I'm sure if he's a personal trainer to gym where a lot of gay men go, that's not going to be a new experience for him. Maybe that's indeed why he's a yeah. personal trainer. Yeah. 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 That's very true. That's very true. I didn't think of it that way. I thought of it in terms of just like, just trying to, protect and maybe that's the wrong way to think about it like i should treat him just like i would treat any other of my gay friends which would be like hey sis watch out for him he's a little creepy yeah and, and the thing about you know that kind of those whisper networks are important you know you, we don't want abusers or people who use people to, to to move through communities picking people off and everybody keeping their mouths shut uh and, yeah. and not giving friends the heads up on the other yeah. hand, you know, when somebody gives us that kind of uh, heads up, like maybe they had a bad experience with that person. Maybe they were the shitty person in that interaction and they're, you know, trying to shift the blame onto that other person or retaliate against that other person for rejecting them. You have to still use your bullshit detectors. Even if you hear something about someone, you're going to want to weigh what you've heard against your own interactions with that person and hope your judgment isn't clouded by dickful thinking. So just a caveat there, like when someone tells you something about somebody totally. else that, you know, maybe you should be on your guard, that can't always be taken at face value. You have to weigh what that person's saying Absolutely. against the person in front of you. Um, but yeah, give them a heads up. Totally give them a heads up like you would to okay, great. any great. I just gay buddy. Sure I wasn't being a dick, so thank you. <laughs> no, no, I don't think you're being a dick. I think the standard is if he's somebody you would warn a gay friend about, you can warn a straight friend about. Particularly if he's told you, I'm going to try to get that straight identified guy drunk and get into his pants. But then if he does, right. obviously those are pants that the straight guy wanted him in. Yeah, absolutely. And then go with God. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Cool. Thank you. Hi, Dan. I'm a bi woman from the Pacific Northwest. Um, I was previously in a long-term relationship that was emotionally abusive and Took a long while to break off from, and I've been single for two years. I recently am on a temporary contract traveling for work and got into a little fling with a coworker. And we both were like, hey, we usually don't do this with coworkers, but, you know, it's a temp contract. I'm only going to be here for so long. Let's, let's see where this goes. Pretty quickly, within um, a few weeks of kind of talking and the relationship starting to build, I started to recognize some behaviors in her that felt like my abusive ex. Um, I She would frequently ask me to sacrifice sleep and cancel my plans so I could hang out with her, but then she would cancel on me because she would rather go hang out with her friends. And 
lots of asking me to sacrifice my life, but um, I was never a priority to her and she could never sacrifice anything for me. And I would see her at work and she would ask me to come over. And I said, no, I wanted to sleep. Uh, We worked night shift and I would tell her no. And then she would spend the whole night asking me many times to come over and wouldn't take my no as an answer. And that's really when I realized that, you know, this is me being attracted to the same personality type and I need to cut it off. Before I got a chance to, she told me she was going to be busy. So I made other plans and then she asked me to hang out and I told her I was busy. And then she's like, I get it if you're not into me. And it really upset me because a little bit of taste for own medicine and she freaked out on me. So I told her I wasn't interested anymore and I already decided that and I uh, didn't want to go any further before we got any more complicated. And I pretty much left it at that. She pushed for more explanation, but I just said I I already made the decision and left it at that. But I feel very guilty because I feel like, you know, as an adult, I should give a proper explanation for why I'm choosing to cut something off. But at the same time, she's proven already she doesn't respect my no and that, and it feels like just like my ex, an explanation isn't gonna matter that she's going to try to convince me um, out of it and try to convince me why she's right anyway. So that's at least the feeling I get and the signs that I've interpreted so far. But I'm really stuck because I feel like an asshole for kind of ghosting her and telling her, no, I don't want to do this anymore and leaving it at that. But am I just doing what's proper for myself or am I being unhealthy and a jerk by just dropping her? I don't understand what you have to feel guilty about here. You didn't ghost her. She was jerking you around and you told her you didn't want to do this anymore and you ended it. You ended it without the explanation that you were ending it because she reminds you of your abusive ex and you thought she was a jerk and inconsiderate and rude and presumptuous. You don't have to rattle off that list of sins and shortcomings and character flaws to exit this relationship. And you did exit it. You said, I don't want to do this anymore. You texted her. Ghosting is we've been fucking for a little bit or dating for a little bit and we have plans for Tuesday and then you don't respond to my text about our plans for Tuesday and then I never hear from you again. That's ghosting. She was jerking you around and getting mad at you and you said, you know what? I'm not enjoying this anymore and I don't want to do this anymore. And that's all the explanation you owe her. So when you say you feel guilty, I'm wondering – Who do you think you wronged here? You didn't wrong her by not telling her she reminds you of your abusive ex or that she's a rude and inconsiderate person. You don't owe her that necessarily. It might benefit her to hear that. Maybe it would be the wake-up call she needs to stop treating people this way. Maybe you would be the third or fourth girlfriend who exited her life in the exact same way and she would finally see the pattern and maybe get her ass into therapy. Maybe, maybe, maybe those things would happen. But you don't owe her any of that. I suspect that what you feel guilty about is that you didn't get to have the last word that she exited the relationship thinking that you were in the wrong, but you exited the relationship knowing in your bones that she was the one who was in the wrong. So it's not really an altruistic impulse. It's motivating you to give her a call and let her know every last thing she did to drive you out of her life and her bed. Maybe it comes from, a meaner place, not mean and malicious. You want to like wound her, but like a smaller and pettier place. It can be unsatisfying to end a relationship with someone that you feel has treated you badly and to know that they walked away feeling like you were the jerk, 
when in reality, they were the jerk, which is why you ended the relationship. If you want the last word, you can definitely attempt to have it. You can't stop her from arguing with you or replying or sending you a text back or an email back or leaving you a voicemail back, making the opposite case. But you can reach out to her and say, look, these are the things that you did. You know, these expectations that you had that, you know, your plans were sacred and my plans were always malleable and you could ask me to change plans, drop plans, and I would, and then you would blow me off. That was hurtful. And goodbye, and you probably shouldn't treat people like that in the future. Can't just snap your fingers and have a girlfriend show up in your bed between your legs whenever you want. You have to be giving as well. And then block her, I guess, lest she responds, lest she gets the last word, which is what I suspect you want. So if you want the last word, you can give it to her. Say your piece. And then either block her so you don't get a response or have the self-discipline not to read her response and feel tempted to get dragged in to a back and forth. And here's hoping that that temporary contract is already up. Hi, Dan, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth, long-term listener here. And I have a question about weed and sex. And this is something that you'd think I'd be able to find details of on the internet, but it's actually really hard. So I've heard you talk about how smoking a bit of weed can be relaxing, how it can lower inhibitions and and can make sex uh, easier and, and better that way. I have all that. But I also have something else, which is whenever I've smoked it in the past, it makes me insanely horny. It is like an aphrodisiac, a a version of a female Viagra, which I know doesn't really exist. It's not that just that um, I'm more relaxed, although I am. It's that sensations are much more intense. Everything feels good in a way that it just doesn't necessarily normally, even when sex is great normally, but also whether I'm alone or with my partner, just an hour and a half later, like clockwork, I just really, really want sex. And I don't know if that's something I should be worried about. I don't know if that's something that happens to other women. Like I said, I, I haven't managed to to read much um, about it. Do, do we know why? Uh, and if it does work for other women, why isn't this being talked about? If if female libido is something that we, we really want to be able to boost, um, and I think lots of women would, would want that, why isn't that something that, that gets mentioned? I want to apologize to my listeners for my complete failure to ever mention the aphrodisiac qualities of marijuana for never urging women particularly women, to experiment with a little pot, just a little bit, not to get destroyed, because it might enhance sex or make them horny or help them disinhibit. That was a real failure. We talk about this all the fucking time. We talk about pot on this show all the fucking time. Let me Google that for you. Google marijuana and aphrodisiac, and you get a million returns in a split second. This is well known about pot. Pot, marijuana can enhance our sensory Experiences enhance our senses. Lights are a little brighter. Music is a little bit more enjoyable. Things taste better. Not just pizza. Ass also tastes better. This is talked about a lot. And you do not have a problem. You stumbled onto a solution. Marijuana works for you. I think perhaps even more important than the sensory benefits of marijuana for many people are just – it's the mild 
disinhibition effect of marijuana that really helps a lot of people. It prevents you from getting in your own way erotically. And it can make you feel closer to your partner and help you forget about whatever conflicts you had during the day. If you get high together and hang out and cuddle a little bit, and then you find yourself having sex and eating ass that tastes better, a little bit better when you're high, maybe just like the pizza tastes a little bit better when you're high. So yeah, what you have is what we like to call not a problem. You have stumbled onto a solution that lots of other people have already stumbled onto and written about and talked about on this show and other shows and in academic journals and medical journals. This is definitely a thing. It's not a thing for everybody. People have different reactions to pot. Some people pot just makes them sleepy. Some people pot makes them paranoid. Some people just want to veg out when they're high and watch television and don't want to fuck. But some people, you included, a statistically significant chunk of the population, a little bit of pot, getting high, sometimes getting even very high, helps them click in erotically or enhances the sex that they're already having and already enjoying. So thank you for calling, even though you didn't have a problem, because it allowed us to emphasize this point once again, and evangelize as I like to do for pot in moderation, all things in moderation, including, of course, moderation itself. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to have a conversation with Dr. Sarah Hunter Murray, registered marriage and family therapist who holds a PhD in human sexuality from the University of Guelph. And she's going to tell me in a minute if I pronounced that correctly. She is the author <laughs> of the new and terrific book, Not Always in the Mood, The New Science of Men, Sex, and Relationships. Hey, Dr. Murray, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Dan? Uh, I, I'm really good. And uh, how do you pronounce University of Guelph? 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 <laughs> Guelph. Um, I know it's a bit of a tongue twister for people saying it for the first time, but the University of Guelph is in Ontario, Canada. <laughs> Maybe I should have practiced and not said it for the first time into a microphone. So, so your book takes on what you call the myths uh, of men's sexuality, myths about men's sexuality, the selfish myth, the pornography myth, the motivation myth. What do you think is the single biggest and most destructive myth about male sexuality? What I noticed really is in our society, we have this discourse and this omnipresent stereotype that men's sexual desire is high, unwavering, strong, that men are always down to have sex, um, that turning them on is simple, that their sexual desire is surface level. And it kind of all fits into this idea that men are just always in the mood for sex. And I was kind of curious about this um, when I was doing my um, my graduate studies. I was wondering, is this stereotype true? Does, do men really feel this way? Or are maybe we talking about men's sexual desire in far too um, narrow um, terms? So you write in the book and you marshal a ton of evidence to demonstrate that men's sexual desire is what you call largely relational in nature. Uh, that's usually how we talk about women's sexual desires, that, that women ha want to have relationships and therefore want to have sex and that men want to have sex and will agree to have relationships to get sex. How did mm -hmm. we get it so wrong? Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, and I, I maybe just want to speak to the women's sexual desire piece for a moment. Um, you know, I am a cisgender woman. I started my research looking at women's sexual desire. And as you say, we have so much more language about women's sexual desire. 
We talk about that relational component that women want to be in relationships, that how close or connected we feel to a partner is going to impact whether we're in the mood to have sex or not. Um, if we're fighting or there's a bit of a disagreement, there's that stereotype of not tonight, honey, I've got a headache. Um, but we really just don't have that same language to talk about men's sexual desire. Um, there's a little bit um, to be said around evolutionary theory. Um, I'm going to simplify this far too much just for the um, purpose of our conversation. But we do have this idea that men are, you know, wired to spread their seed, that they want to be able to be ready to have sex with multiple women, you know, that relationships, you know, are kind of secondary to being able to get laid you know, far too simplified, but there is that idea out there that men prioritize sex and the relational stuff comes secondary. What I found, though, is by talking to men who are in relationships, which is a good chunk of our, you know, male society, um, you know, that there's so much about those interactions um, with a partner that impact, you know, if they're in the mood, whether they're feeling desired, if they're comfortable having sex, you know, the level of interest that they have. Um, and and it's really important to acknowledge that when we're talking about male sexuality. Now, responsive desire, that's something we talk about a lot. We talk about it a lot on this show. That mm-hmm. And we usually talk about women experiencing responsive desire. That a lot of women get horny when they feel desired. And you show in your book that many men – and your book's mostly about straight men and straight women and straight relationships. Men feel the same way, that, that men want to feel – wanted in the same way, in a very similar way that women want to feel wanted. And since we don't talk about that, since we don't understand that, men don't get that in their relationships often. And then the sex falls apart and everyone's standing Mm -hmm. around wondering why. Mm -hmm. And there's some really good reasons for why we have that discourse around women versus men again. Um, When we come to sexual scripts, and as you point out, my book is largely about, you know, um, men and women in, you know, straight heterosexual relationships. The way that men are raised is to be the pursuer, you know, to to kind of push that next level of sexual intimacy, to make their particular female partners feel wanted and desired, giving compliments. You know, there's kind of those ideas of, you know, Valentine's Day giving chocolates or flowers on a first date, things like that. And women are used to being the ones who are pursued or chased. We're used to hearing, you look great, you look so beautiful, you look so sexy, having a man make the first move if we're in a relationship with a man. Um, And so we know that, we know how important it is. And the research shows that feeling sexually desired is a huge factor for helping women feel higher levels of desire. That some women may say they're in more of a neutral state and with their male partner kind of you know, flirting with them or, or kind of, you know, making some moves towards something romantic or sexual, that their desire might kind of show up. However, when I was interviewing men for my research, and what I hear all the time in the clinical setting, is that men want to feel wanted too, which seems so obvious. But again, we just don't really have that discourse happening to kind of make it so normal um, that men also want to feel wanted, they want to feel desired. Uh, Men have told me that they really love when their female partner will give them compliments about their appearance, that they look really sexy that day. If she kind of comes up and is the one to touch him first, even if it's in a romantic way, it doesn't necessarily even need to be initiating sex, although it certainly can include that. Um, But it really spins these um, sexual scripts on their head um, to say that men want to feel desired and wanted in return. 
And yet it was one of the most common things that I've heard over the course of my research as being such a key factor for men in terms of their sexuality and whether they feel interested in sex themselves. When I saw your chapter heading on the porn myth, I was a little concerned <laughs> because I've, I've always said that, that all men look at porn and I'm often in the position mm-hmm. of advising women who'd rather have male partners who don't look at porn to get a toaster or a dog because if they get a human man with access to the internet, he's going to look at porn. And I was worried I was going to get to your chapter and the myth that was going to be uh, torn apart was that all men look at porn. But you kind of like accept that most all men do or have or will look at mm-hmm. porn the myths that you bust, and I think it's really interesting, are, are myths about what it means when mm-hmm. a man looks at porn. Yes, and 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 I um, you know, I, I appreciate that. I, I do. I, I agree with your point. I mean, most people, men and women, quite frankly, but particularly men, do acknowledge that they're watching porn, and it can be a healthy part of a relationship. And it's not something to necessarily say is got to be problematic, although people have different opinions about it. Um, but yeah, I think the reason I wanted to include that chapter was because I thought it was interesting how men that in my studies talked about where porn fit in their sex life, particularly in a clinical setting. I do hear women kind of being concerned that if their male partner watches porn, that he prefers it, that that's what he likes better, that he wants her to kind of fit into some of those fantasies. Again, maybe that's the case in some in, in some relationships. I'm not trying to deny that. But I think what we're missing when we talk about men and porn is that for a Some men, it's kind of this, you know, it's a replacement. Sometimes it's a way to kind of bridge the gap if, say, their partner isn't in the mood to have sex. They're talking about how they would, in a lot of cases, would so much rather be connected to their partner that they want to be having sex with a person. Um, You know, one of the metaphors that stands out in my research is, you know, someone kind of talked about looking at someone else's vacation pictures versus being on vacation yourself. (laughs) You know, you'd rather have sex than watch someone else do it, you know. Porn can be fun. It can be exciting. It can be a way to kind of, you know, bring some, you know, some excitement into our our sex life. It can also show up in negative ways. I want to acknowledge that for some people. Um, But I just thought it was interesting how men kind of talked about it as, you know, so secondary or like a complement to their relationship versus their main um, focus, at least ideally. (laughs) There's a case study that, you know, you know, you work with couples and there's a couple that you profile uh, where the wife was upset because she went upstairs to bed and he was sitting downstairs watching TV, watching some sports programming or whatever it is that straight men watch in the middle of the night. And she came down <laughs> to get a glass of water and he was masturbating to porn on his phone. And her feeling was, I was upstairs. If he wanted mm-hmm. to have sex, he could have come upstairs and had sex with me. And he seemed to feel like he'd gotten no signals that she was open to or interested in sex and kind of didn't mm-hmm. want to bother her, but was also not feeling very energetic and just wanted to rub one out in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I see that disconnect and that misunderstanding often in the, in the calls I get from people with problems with porn that, you know, if I'm around, why would he ever have to look at porn? And you unpack mm-hmm. reasons why men might look at porn to supplement, to bridge the gap when they're too tired for sex and don't want to disappoint their partners by having you know, less than energetic sex or they don't want to have maintenance sex again. And I thought mm-hmm. that was really interesting, you know, the, the, that men whose wives will have sex with them and there's not a lot of passion don't enjoy that. They don't enjoy feeling like, you know, I talk a lot on the show, you know, I encourage people not to allow themselves to be used as fleshlights, not to be tube Mm -hmm. socks. Uh, And and sometimes the animating assumption there is a guy will use you like that. And what you show in your book is that guys don't want to use their sex partners like that. 
Absolutely. Having um, an enthusiastic partner during sex is, was key, right? It's not just sex for sex sake. It's not just the physical gratification. I mean, I always say sex should feel good and ideally does feel good. And it's okay to have that physical urge satisfied. But there's also that emotional connection piece. Are we feeling on the same page? Do I have the energy? Do we want to have the same kind of sex right now? Is my partner as interested as I am? Or would I rather just kind of um, you know, not have to navigate her lackluster or, you know, kind of ho-hum attitude today. Like, I don't want to have sex with her if that's where she's at, even if she's a quote-unquote willing participant. It's it's kind of talking about how much more exciting and special sex can be. And I think there's a lot of people having really unfortunate sex, and maybe this kind of speaks to your, you know, you don't want to be someone's fleshlight. You know, just the act of having sex, if we're not mentally there and, you know, excited about it and, and you know, enthused, you know, that's a pretty un- unsatisfying, dissatisfying sexual encounter to be having. And maybe it's better sometimes to not be choosing that sexual activity. Mm-hmm. Masturbation or watching porn is a great supplement if if we're not both on the same page. What does it say about... I don't know, the the hole we dug ourselves into with men's sexuality or the assumptions we allowed to sort of calcify over the decades, over the millennia, that your book is such a page turner and, and comes as such a shock. And really, you know, reading it was fascinating. And yet I had to step back every once in a while and go, what I'm reading here is that men have feelings. <laughs> men want to be wanted. Men want to mm-hmm. be desired. Men are as conscious of themselves as objects as women are and want to be appreciated also for the objects they are, that this desire to be objectified in a, a way, by someone who also sees you as a, a fully three-dimensional human being with feelings and they care about the rest of you and your feelings too, as well as the object that you are. All of these things should be obvious and yet we need your book. And mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I'm blushing. You're, you're so, um, you're being so flattering right now. I really appreciate that. But yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're also nailing things on the head here. Like, you know, this research is new in terms of what is out there um, in the sex research world. Again, we have so much research about the complexities of women's sexual desire. We talk like women, like they're complex human beings, which we are, as are men. And so I think it's just confronting to all of a sudden be questioning, how did we really get here, as you say? I mean, how did we get to the point where we were talking about men's sexuality as more robotic than human? Um, you know, at this point, as I've been talking about my, my book more, and as I have more, you know, clients that I work with, I, I keep going back to the fact, like, as you know, men are humans. <laughs> like, and it's crazy to think that we were ever talked about men's sexuality as if they weren't. And so I love just creating a little bit of space to say, you know what, Despite these masculine norms, despite these stereotypes that men are always supposed to be in the mood, that their sex drive is simple and surface level and strong, there are tons of examples of men who have lower sex drives, that their sex drives are maybe less than a female partner. That's normal. That happens in a lot of mixed sex relationships. Um, You know, that men's desire is so much more complex and nuances. It's attached to feelings and emotions. It's attached to fatherhood, stress at work, you know, whether they're feeling tired, um, it's just, let's just talk about men's sexuality as full and complex and stop making some of these really narrow stereotypes. So reading your book, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, uh, oh, gotcha. the, the way you detail how differently men and women are socialized, 
uh, even just around masturbation. Men are society is men permission to masturbate. Men are expected to masturbate. Their genitals hang outside their bodies. They have to handle their genitals to to take a piss. Uh, women's genitals are tucked away and inside. Women aren't encouraged to masturbate. Women are slut shamed in ways that men aren't. And men and women arrive, you know, straight men and women arrive at their relationships at such a disconnect, such a disadvantage. It's almost as if society, culture set men and women up in their relationships for failure. And there were times I was reading your book going, I am so glad I'm a faggot. I am so glad I'm gay. I am so glad that I am with people who were socialized the way I was socialized. I think about masturbation and so many women who are straight arrive at their first sexual relationships, never having masturbated their first partner in sex. They've never masturbated. They don't know how to make themselves come. And they look at some 18 year old boy and wonder why he can't make them come. Every man arrives at his first partnered sex, gay or straight, just an expert on how to get off an expert on what their dick needs to get there. And Mm -hmm. women don't arrive at partnered sex with that kind of, self-knowledge and expertise because of what the culture does to women, the zap the culture puts on women's heads. You know, there's a big zap and you go into this a lot in the book, the zap that the culture puts on men's heads about, you know, having Mm -hmm. to want it all the time, having to be responsible for initiating all the time, having to be horny all the time. You're not a man if you ever pass up on an opportunity for sex. Uh, But there's the zap that the culture puts on women's heads and it just to be outside of that, outside of heterosexual sex, outside of heterosexual relationships, and a long-time observer, sometimes it is marvel at what the fuck straight people think that they were doing, trying to accomplish, <laughs> socializing men and women to be in such conflict. Yeah. Well, first of all, you have such a way with words. I really appreciate how you, <laughs> how you just put that all out there. Um, but it, it's, it's true. And, and I mean, I, I, I think that, um, you know, just a couple of things based on what you said there. You know, one of the reasons that I wrote this book, I mean, I, I recognize that it does have this focus on straight men and women. But the reason I was so interested in that is for exactly what you're saying. Like men typically are socialized, you know, for like, you know, they get to know their body parts. They're more, you know, adapted masturbation. They know what they like sexually. There's more permission to be openly sexual. There's still more rewards for having multiple sexual partners. Mm-hmm. Women still are socialized with all the things you said. You know, typically there's not as much. Um, comfort with masturbation before they're with a partner, even with a partner, the, the you know knowing of our bodies and what we want, being more receptive. You write, women are taught to repress their desires; men are taught to embrace them. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean that's you know painting with a broad stroke, but I still see it so often, and I love hearing when people say, you know what, that's not my experience, or I've broken the mold. Wonderful, you know, kudos to you. That's amazing. But I'm still working with a lot of people who have to rewrite a lot of years of messages that they've received to kind of find a way for, you know, when, or for women to kind of embrace their sexuality, um, you know, to say, I do have a high sex drive or what does it look like? How do I embrace my pleasure? Even if I experience it, how do I share it? And it's interesting with men and women when they're in relationships, we have this idea that men not only have high desire, but they've got higher desire than their female partner. When we look at, you know, men and women in relationships, what we're seeing is women can be just as likely to be the partner with higher desire. But what they might be doing is saying, well, if he doesn't want it, maybe there's something wrong with me. Should I have higher desire? Mm-hmm. Or is there something wrong with him? What's up with him that he doesn't want to have sex because I'm down? And it turns into, you know, some like self-doubt, some self-blame, some relationship conflict. 
Um, but it's actually completely normal and natural. And, and in fact, you know, it happens just about as often that women are the ones with higher desire. Um, but there are so many things to navigate, especially, like you said, when men and women, you know, partner with one another. Um, and I'm so interested to learn more about how some of the things that I talk about in my book might apply to men who are, you know, gay, bisexual, queer, trans, to see how messages are received or interpreted differently and where we might veer from some of those standard discourses. You know, I often think when we talk about men and women partnering together, women have to factor physical safety in, in a way that men just don't. That, Mm -hmm. you know, women are taught to repress their desires and that's terrible and it has negative consequences for a lot of people's relationships. However, it is more dangerous for a woman to act on impulse. It is more dangerous for a woman to enter into a relationship with a man than a man to enter into a relationship with a woman, even if it's just, mm-hmm. you know, a one night stand, intimate partner violence, sexual violence, the risk of pregnancies, mm-hmm. so much disproportionate potential life ending, like threatening consequences fall onto women's shoulders. Is it not in some way because men are testosterone soaked dick monsters appropriate for women to be encouraged, you know, not not to repress their desires, not to be in touch with them, but to be warier about acting on them. And unfortunately the culture has turned that into, you know, slut shaming and, and, you know, tamping down women's desires and telling women that they don't have desires. They just have desire for relationships, not sex. However, it's riskier for a woman to be out there in the world being sexual than it is for a man and safety, you know, feeling close and connected to a sex partner for a woman is one way of assuring that you're hopefully less likely to be murdered by that sex partner. Yeah. I mean, you're touching on some really um, important and very real, um, you know, risks for women and, and that certainly impacts, you know, how free we can be with our sexuality and who we share that with. So, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. These aren't necessarily arbitrary rules that are being flung at us. Um, there's real safety that needs to be considered. Um, and we obviously need to have that conversation with men in terms of how they are expressing their sexuality in safe and respectful ways and how they interact with, you know, any partner, but particularly as we're talking about here with with female partners. Um but I think, you know, just even when you talk about, you know, testosterone, it's soaked, whatever, you know, yes. Dick like monsters. Testosterone soaked dick yeah, monsters. Yeah. That's my pet name for Thank men. You. And I'm a man, so I can oh say my. that. Um, you know, and again, are, are there dangerous men out there or are there men who behave dangerously out there? Absolutely. But I also have you know, heard more and more men really wrestle with this um, this idea of, you know, what type of male sexuality does get presented. There are a lot of true stories. Those stories need to be told. Absolutely. The whole Me Too movement, Time's Up movement absolutely needs to happen. But I think there are a lot of men who are, are struggling with, whoa, like, you know, how is male sexuality being portrayed? And are there other sides other than this kind of more, you know, sinister, um, you know, way that men express their power and sexuality. And and so I just think it's so important to at least also be talking about these softer, more emotional, more um, gentle parts of men's sexuality to, to give that some space in the dialogue while we're talking about men's sexuality. And the more vulnerable parts uh, of men's Absolutely. sexuality and, and allowing for men to have feelings, allowing for men to have needs, including the need to feel desired, to feel wanted, and again, and I think this is really important to feel objectified in a positive and affirming way. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that you kind of put it that way. I mean, we think of object- objectification as being negative and it certainly can be. And we talk about women's bodies, particularly being objectified. But it was interesting to hear men in my research use the word objectify in this really fun, positive way. This idea of wanting to be looked at, wanting their you know, partner to notice like that they've been working out or that it looked good in a certain shirt or to kind of feel her hungry eyes on his body. Um, and so I think, it, you know, it's just interesting to kind of hear that word being used again in a healthy, consensual relationship. It can actually be quite a positive, sexy experience. Dr. Sarah Hunter-Murray, registered marriage and family therapist. Her new book, and it is terrific, and I think everybody out there with a penis or who is fond of someone with a penis should get their hands on it and read it. Not always in the mood, the new science of men, sex, and relationships. Dr. Murray, people who are interested in your work, where, where else can they find you? Where are you on Twitter? Where are you on the internet? Yeah, so I've, my website is sarahuntermurray.com. I'm on Twitter as Sex Dr. Sarah. Um, and yeah, you can find me there. And I so appreciate you having me on your show. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Well, I hope you'll come back and we'll throw some questions at you next time from the listeners. Oh my gosh, I would love that. Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. I am a mid-20s female from the Pacific Northwest. I am an introvert and my small COVID bubble is made up of two extroverts. I am beginning to feel like my relationships have become very codependent, considering the fact that my extroverted friends don't have the usual outlets they had pre-COVID. So I feel a lot of that weight falling on my shoulders. I also work full-time as a childcare worker, so the majority of my time is already spent tending to others' needs. I feel like I'm quickly becoming burnt out and hardly find the time to recharge. As time moves on, I increasingly feel the need to set harder boundaries, but it is incredibly difficult for me as I am a natural people pleaser and I understand how challenging these times are for my extroverted friends. I really value my time alone, especially these days as I have taken to new creative projects, but that time now feels like a luxury that I can barely grasp. How can I avoid a codependent entanglement but remain a good, supportive friend during these difficult times? So your problem here really is that you haven't set a boundary and your extrovert friends aren't psychic. You are the solution to this problem that you have kind of created. Maybe they haven't been as intuitive as you would like your friends to be and they're not reading your moods in a way that you would like your friends to be able to read your moods, but they don't know what you haven't told them. And you're working on some artistic projects and you're more of an introvert than they are and you need some more time alone and you need to be able to carve that time out. Uh, If you're all living together, you need to carve that time out. They can't give you that if they don't know that you want it and you can't be angry at them for barging in and taking up your time if that's just how they are and how they roll and they haven't been asked to behave differently or respect your closed door, whatever it is uh, that you do when you want to be alone and work on your artistic project. So say something, set a boundary. And I, I say this to you as a fellow introvert, thinking about the pandemic and how everyone's been thrown together and thinking about all my extroverted friends who are cooped up right now. When the pandemic ends, I think I'm going to have feelings that are very similar to compersion, but for extroverts, I'm going to be really happy for you guys when you can go out again and you can party again and you can all hang out in bars again, but I'm probably going to stay home about as much as I'm staying home now because I am an introvert caller like you. So this is not an extrovert pounding on an introvert, introvert to introvert. I am telling you, set those boundaries. 
ask for what you need. Ask for the space that you need. They may have to be reminded. Remember, an extrovert who treats you like this is treating you the way they would like to be treated themselves. And they may need to be nudged a few times and reminded that you aren't an extrovert like them and that you need more space from your friends than they would want from their friends. But you can definitely make an introvert-extrovert relationship or friendship work. I've made it work for a very long time. I am an introvert with an extrovert. You can make this work. But like me, you're going to have to use your words. You're going to have to set those boundaries. And if you don't use your words and you don't set your boundaries and your extroverted friends aren't psychic, then this problem that you're having in these relationships is entirely your fault. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Lil Gossip XO tweets, mismatched COVID risk assessment is the new mismatched libido. Thoughts, Dan? Well, I see what you mean, Lil Gossip. I see what you're going for. But after the pandemic ends, people aren't going to sit around sharing or really even thinking about their COVID risk assessments when choosing partners. Maybe they should. We all want to be with people who have good judgment. And someone who took unreasonable risks during the pandemic obviously has terrible judgment. But mismatched libidos, those are a problem right now. They'll be a problem after the pandemic, absent some reasonable accommodation. So mismatched libidos, potentially a bigger problem going forward. Laura Baranek tweets, basking in the high EQ glow of my two favorite radical empaths of the malpersuasion on this week's Savage Lovecast. Can we have more like at fake Dan Savage and more like at John Ronson, please? I don't know if they're more like John Ronson out there. Maybe they're more like me. I don't think I'm that special. But John Ronson is one of a kind, and he is welcome to come back on our show anytime. And finally, Cheyenne Summer tweets, I know I've listened to too much Savage Lovecast when a coworker tells me his wife thinks I'm awesome, and my first thought is, wait, am I about to be asked to swing? So, Cheyenne, were you asked to swing? You don't say. Inquiring minds, we want to know. And hey, there is no such thing as too much Savage Lovecast. Thank you to everyone who posted about the show to your social media last week. And if you want me to read your tweet on next week's show, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, Dan. Physician here calling from the East Coast in response to the caller from episode 746, who asked about transmittable infections that can arise when eating out unwashed buttholes. Your advice isn't quite right, so I wanted to make a few clarifications. Hepatitis A isn't a thing that people are regularly tested for unless they're symptomatic, so you wouldn't necessarily know if your partner had it. Also, all sorts of bacteria live in our guts that aren't supposed to be translocated to the upper gastrointestinal tract. So you could easily transmit E. coli or Giardia or any other number of bacteria from your lower GI tract to someone else's upper GI tract if the butthole isn't freshly washed. Of course, this risk is always there despite washing, but it's much lower risk if the washing happened right before the eating. Happy eating. Hey, Dan, I'm calling about the woman in the Bay Area who had called in about her situation with her boyfriend and their very different finances and her needing to move back with her parents and so on. And um, I think that you missed a big red flag in her call. At the very end of her call, she mentioned that he wants to buy a house together and he doesn't want his name on it. I, I think that's a red flag anyway, but especially given their 
financial situations, I think it's an even bigger red flag, and she should DTMFA. Hi, I have an ultimatum suggestion for the woman whose husband will not go down on her when they have sex, which is just to tell him playfully, if you will, that he doesn't get to get off or he doesn't get to put his dick in you until he's eaten you out. And you just make that a rule that applies 100% of the time you have sex. And if you want to release him from that occasionally and say, you know, tonight's just about you, you don't have to worry about me, you can do that. So it doesn't have to be 100% of the time you have sex, but it's just sort of a foundational place to work from. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Grab your tickets for an all-new Savage Lovecast live stream with me, Nancy, and our very special guest, the profane dominatrix and writer, Mistress Matisse. Send your questions ahead of time, especially if they're SM-related, for Matisse to livestream at savagelovecast.com or just come to the show and ask your questions live. Go to savagelovecast.com slash events to get tickets. And the Hump 2021 Film Festival is going strong with two shows this weekend, including a viewing party from Hump filmmakers and performers this Friday and a European screening on Saturday, February 20th. Head over to humpfilmfest.com to choose a showtime that works for you. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Murray on Twitter at SexDrSarah. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescued and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.